Hey, it's Dustin Burleson, and you're listening to another episode of The Burleson Box. This month on the program, we're talking with Roger Martin. Many of today's top business and management thinkers call Roger Martin, quote, this generation's Peter Drucker. He's the professor emeritus at the Rotman School of Management at the University of Toronto, where he served as a dean from 1998 to 2013 and as institute director of the Martin Prosperity Institute from 2013 to 2019. In 2013, Roger was named Global Dean of the Year, and in 2017, he was named the world's number one management thinker. He's published 12 previous books, including, most recently, When More Is Not Better and Playing to Win, which won an award for Best Book of 2013 by Thinkers 50. Martin is a trusted strategy advisor to CEOs of many global companies, a Canadian from Wallenstein, Ontario. He holds a BA from Harvard College and an MBA from Harvard Business School. I'm so excited for this episode. You're in for a treat. Roger is our first time repeat author on the program, talking about his book that just launched, A New Way to Think, Your Guide to Superior Management Effectiveness. Let's dig in on this month's episode of The Burleson Box. Are you trying to increase your treatment plan close rates while also increasing revenue? How can you do both for your dental practice without burning out an already burdened staff? The answer? Remote dental monitoring. You need a trusted HIPAA-compliant app that helps you and your staff work smarter, not harder. This needs to be an easy-to-use, easy-onboard app that your patients will find fun to use and will increase their engagement and success with aligners. You need the InHand Dental app. The InHand Dental app allows you to engage with your patients in real time, send individual and batched messages, and solve problems to increase compliance without using up chair time. The result? Happy patients, happy staff, and happy practices. With more revenue and the ability to do more starts. With prices starting as low as $149 a month, it's perfect for a growing aligner business. Check us out and learn more at InHandDental.com. Plus, mention Burleson for a 20% off discount on your subscription when you contact us. That's InHandDental.com. Roger Martin, welcome back to the program. It's great to be back. Really nice to be back. If for listeners who are just getting caught up or just joining us and somewhere in the mix of all of our episodes, Roger Martin's last episode on his last book, When More Is Not Better, is one of our most popular episodes. So please go check that out. And uh, Roger's been busy. He has a new book, A New Way to Think, Your Guide to Superior Management Effectiveness. Roger, tell us a little bit and give the listeners a background. Why this book? Why now? Sure. The reason for writing this book is I've just noticed over time. So I, as you know, I work with uh, senior executives in companies all around the world. And, and what I've noticed is how entrenched given models get in their thinking. And I almost feel sad when they try one of these models. So let's just use this whole shareholder value. You know, uh, here's here's how you make sure you get higher shareholder value. You uh, pay lots of stock-based compensation to your executives, and then you'll get more shareholder value because it aligns the interests of management and, sh- and shareholders, right? So that's a model. That's a theory that says, oh, if you do X, 
you know, uh, stock-based compensation, you'll get Y, more shareholder value. Now, that's been around since the late 70s. It really gets got started in, in, the, in the late 70s. And shareholder value increase uh, has not improved one iota since then. And you'd sort of think, well, you know, maybe they'd say this model doesn't work. Uh, well, how about a different model? But there's so many people who sort of are involved in, believe in, et cetera, the model that they say, well, no, maybe it's because we gave stock options and maybe restricted stock would be a lot uh, better. Let's try doing restricted stock grants instead. And then that doesn't work. And they say, well, maybe we didn't structure the stri- restricted uh, stock grants uh, uh, correctly and that doesn't work. And then they try the next thing and the next thing. But they don't abandon the model and ask themselves the question, hey, you know what, maybe this whole alignment thing doesn't happen. In fact, giving them stock-based compensation actually pits shareholders against managers who manipulate stock prices just to get it to go up and down so that so that they make money when we don't. They don't, they just don't, that doesn't seem to be the natural occurrence. And so that's why I've written the book. I'd love to encourage executives and boards of of companies, owners of companies, to when the model doesn't work the way they thought, to consider the possibility that it's a dumb model and they should try something else. Why? <laughs> why do you think that is? I, I love it, and you're spot on. Why do you think that is? Is it a nature of the size of an organization? Is it the leadership surrounding themselves with people that won't? toss out these old ways of thinking well, what what's your take on that i i actually think it has more to do with human nature right like business is my sort of domain of study but i wouldn't be surprised if you studied lots of other domains you'd see people sticking to models longer than they should and i think it's it, that we do know from all sorts of behavioral research that people get into habits habits are quite powerful uh, people like to be kind of automatic if you will They'd rather not think about uh, as many things as they can so that they can save their brain energy to think about things when it really matters. Um, And I think it's probably a bit of human nature and uh, it's just you don't want to abandon something that you've believed is true. Plus, plus all these models uh, that I see in business that that, uh, seem to stick, you know, gain traction and stick – have some appealing logic to them, right? So the appealing logic of of stock-based compensation uh, is if the executive, if the if the shareholder does better, the executive does better. And everybody said, oh, what's not to like about that? That's perfect. Then they don't ask the question, does, it, does this model, does the tool of stock-based compensation actually do that? But it just sounds so good. They they uh, stick with it. We we do that a lot. And speaking of uh, professions or areas of study that are slow to change, healthcare is certainly one Absol- of those. Absolutely. <laughs> no, no, absolutely. And and uh, uh, and I I often, for what it's worth, use the 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 ulcer example. Right for almost a hundred years. Uh, the, the medical profession was convinced that ulcers were caused by excess uh, acid in the stomach, 
uh, and, uh, you know, prescribed bland diets and acids and uh, peptic ulcer surgery when uh, when it got bad enough, like cutting strips out of the person's uh, uh, stomach, right? Uh, and it took uh, these crazy Australians uh, over a decade uh, to convince the medical profession that it was a bacteria, you know, H. pylori. Uh, and, uh, and so it turns out that every peptic ulcer surgery ever done over about a 90-year period made the patient worse off. Their health outcome was worse than better, but it took that long because there was this theory, right? This appealing theory. The stomach is like a delicate bag, like a silk purse. And if it's got acid in it, it eats into that delicate lining. And that's what, uh, that's what causes uh, ulcers, right? A very, very appealing theory just happens to be totally wrong, uh, <laughs> but it was, it was sufficiently appealing uh, that it took uh, Barry Marshall, the Australian who came up with the alternative theory, he had to ingest H. pylori, grow an ulcer, cure it with antibiotics uh, to get his paper uh, published. Right. So, so you're right, sir. But, but I, I don't, I don't say that by way of saying healthcare is some special case of people, people <laughs> being pigheaded about their models. I think it's kind of a, a, a human. Thing and the and the real key is is not I'm not I'm not sort of saying well then you must deeply question every single model that you've ever used. No, I just say when they don't work the way you expected, think about two possibilities, not one. Think I didn't do it right, okay, or maybe it's a bad model, not just I did I didn't I must not have done it right. It's such a great answer, and I want to highlight that so no one misses it. it. It took those researchers over a decade to get people to think in a new way. Yeah. <laughs> so, so maybe as you read Roger's book, you know, just keep in mind that you might not convince your your team leaders or your if you have shareholders or you're in a large organization have partners or or even larger and have a board. Probably going to be a little bit challenging, right? Yes, yes, it will. And 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 again, I I what I would. Say is the the best way to do it is to make the predictions based on your model explicit, right? So I would say uh, in, in the shareholder value stuff. Okay, so let's just say for sake of argument, you're you're the chairman of the board, right? Uh, you, you say, okay, we're going to give this uh, CEO this much in stock based compensation, this these many options and these many restricted stock. And our prediction is, uh, rather than increasing shareholder value by the, I don't know, let's just a 7% compound per, per year that, that this CEO has done over the last five years, we would expect over the next five years that to be 12%. And just write it down, write it down. And then if after five years, it isn't 12% compound annual, right? you say, well, what's wrong with my model? that caused it to be 5%, not 7% as the past, or the 12% we we predicted. And because the, the reason that it's so important to write it down is that when you get out five years and it's 7.3% compound annual, you'll say, yeah, 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 yeah. That's what we said, right? Yeah, 
we said 7.3, didn't we? <laughs> yeah. It, it, so the, the human mind has an infinite capacity to ex post rationalize. And the only guard against that is, is writing it down. I did this once just, just for fun. I, you know, I, I used to be the kind of the COO of a big management consulting firm based, based in, based in Boston and our, and one of the many things I ran was, was recruiting and the recruiting folks were quite adamant about their ability to, to really discern among the candidates that we were hiring who had the highest potential da, 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 da. And, if, and if you argued with them at all they said oh no 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 we've done all the interviews and the assessments and this is it and so i said okay 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 let's just let's just do this you guys rank uh the 25 we happen to hire 25 mbas that that year you hire you rank the mbas we've hired from 1 to 25 in terms of their you know, their likelihood of success Right. And what I'm going to do is take that list and put it in my drawer and not pull it out for three years. I'm not even going to look at it. Nobody's going to look at it. And in three years, we're going to all take that list out. And because every year in the compensation process, we implicitly rank them. Whoever got the highest bonus, you know, total compensation must have been performing the best da, 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 down to the 25. We're just going to take the real data right after compensation system three, uh, uh, three years from now and uh, see how we did. Okay. And they're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And they were like super confident. Uh, and it was a random walk. <laughs> it was a absolutely random walk. And I always remember number one had been fired about 18 months in for being, for, being, for just not being, just wasn't, he wasn't ever going to be a good consultant. Great guy, nice as can be. And, and, uh, and when we told him, we, we had a partner, he said, wow, I was wondering when you're going to do that. I'm just not good at this. <laughs> and he knew. Yeah, 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 no, he, he absolutely, as is most, mostly the case. So when mm-hmm. people know, they know, they know, but, but so we could have hired from the zoo a chimpanzee for a couple of hours and had him throw darts at a dartboard and we would have done as well as this very quote sophisticated recruiting process but had i swear to god right had i not had that list and i would have gone back to the recruiting people and said well how do you think we did in that class of of three years ago they said oh yeah pretty well Pretty well, I think. I think we had it, you know, pretty well. And they would have forgotten completely that they had whatever Billy ranked uh, ranked number one of twenty five, and and we'd fired him uh, eighteen months in. That would have been lost in the mists of, of of time. So, write if you're going to use a model, write down your predictions as to what you think the model will do for you, and then check back and see, uh, and that will help you decide whether you should. Try to use it again, use it more cleverly, or if it's if it's a candidate for ejection. It's such a great tip. I hope everyone caught that and or pauses and goes back um, because it works in reverse too, right? So I think of all the things we do in healthcare. A handful of years ago, maybe it's been a decade ago, they came up with a new surgical procedure to help move teeth faster for patients. Oh, okay. okay. So they started using my, a little micro osteoperforation. So, you know, we're basically yep. drilling small holes in your bone of your jaw. Yep. And we have some limited evidence that that stimulates the bony repair, kind of like distraction osteogenesis, where if we need to 
lengthen a bone, perhaps, in a patient who has a genetic syndrome. In, in certain situations, it works. Well, we translated that into moving teeth, and no one wrote down, you know, is this actually reducing treatment time? And it's kind of fallen out of favor now because turns out the research shows, no, it doesn't, uh, even though we were drilling holes in all these patients' bone. And, ooh, and right, and at a significant expense, and these, these devices were sold by, you know, very slick sales representatives. And it turns out, not only do they not move teeth any faster, but they actually increase the risk of root resorption and other complications of treatment. Ooh. So, oh, great example. Taken, yeah, if we'd taken Roger's advice and said, we are going to institute this new process, and we think that's going to reduce tr- the initial leveling and aligning by two months. Yep. Let's go back two years from now when all the cases are finished, and let's see if we were right. And often, to Roger's point, we're not. And now what's interesting in reverse is that sometimes we stop doing things that do work. So yes. what we found in our clinics to be far more effective at getting patients out of treatment faster is educating them on the importance of not breaking their appliances, of complying with proper recall intervals. So showing up to their appointments, Uh keeping their teeth clean, not breaking the braces, far more effective at reducing treatment time. But what we found in busy clinics is very easy for the clinical assistant or the doctor to forget to do a thorough debriefing with the parent on what we did today, why it's important not to eat certain foods, why these things we placed on your child's teeth might break. So we all get excited about something we think will work. We never write down if, if we got the results or not. And then we forget about the things that do work. So I love your example because it's, I think you're right. It's human nature. And it's, it's everything. Yeah. No, those are, those are marvelous examples, marvelous examples. And, and, and I mean, it, it is, I mean, the tricky thing about kind of life, right, is it doesn't exactly always obey the most simple rules. It's kind of complicated, right? <laughs> uh, and uh, and what that requires is you watch life as it unfolds, uh, because you're going to get all sorts of new data. And what I what I kind of hate is when when and and I may I might say the medical field is a little bit this way. It, it sort of declares something to be settled. This matter is settled. Uh, and then that sends the signal kind of, you don't even have to measure anymore because we just know this is the, this is the case. I don't, I just don't think anything's ever settled. Kind of, we no. thought the laws of physics were settled for about 150 years, right? <laughs> oh, this really smart dude, uh, Sir Isaac Newton. And he was, he was a smart dude. It's like these three things and this is how it works. Um, you know, and it took a goofy non-sock-wearing patent clerk, uh, Albert Einstein, to say, "Well, you know, maybe what we've what we're sure is settled isn't quite, quite, quite as settled as we as we thought." Um, but it, that's really hard, right? That because people want things to be settled, and I just don't think much much in the complicated world we call life is settled. That's exactly right. We want everything to be settled. Speaking of some tremendous um, myths, I think you've busted in the book on, on, <laughs> on ways we we thought were settled. Let's talk about competition. I, sure. love, I mean, I love the book. First, I mean, you've got to get through the entire thing, and it, it will blow your mind. Um, I mean, healthcare is certainly an area that that's constantly being disrupted. But there's a dominant model of thinking about competition, and it's flawed. You say, right? There's a better way to think about this. Can we talk about competition? Sure. I think 
the dominant way of thinking about competition would be would be kind of big companies compete with one another. So everybody would love to think that Pepsi competes with Coke. You know, PepsiCo Limited and Coca-Cola Limited compete. Um, and based on that notion that those compete, then those are sort of the generals, right, at the top of those co- companies. And they they have to control and organize and coordinate the troops and have all sorts of mechanized, me- mechanisms for doing that, right? That's sort of the way competition and then Pepsi and Coke compete. I would argue that uh, while in some sense they do, that's not who consumers think compete, right? When you when you're thinking about uh, reaching into a, a cabinet in a C store, the uh, cold cabinet in the free uh, uh, C store, and picking out a water, are are you saying, ah, I've got to decide between PepsiCo's Aquafina product and uh, Coca-Cola Limited's Dasani product, <laughs> or or I got to decide whether I really like Coke and I'm loyal to Coke and I'll buy Powerade, or I'm Pepsi and I'll buy buy Gatorade. No, that's the farthest thing from the from the consumer's mind. Aquafina competes with Dasani. Gatorade competes with Powerade. Tropicana r- competes with Minute Maid. Diet Pepsi competes with Diet Coke. That is what I would call the the rock face, the coal face of of competition. And so the job of those people up top is not to control and coordinate. The job of those people at the top is to make sure that they're helping, if they're Pepsi, Aquafina compete with Dasani, Gatorade to compete with Powerade. And if they don't have that as their primary job, if they spend time saying, well, you know, Aquafina, we're doing badly in the cola business this quarter. I think you better cut your advertising or cut your distribution uh, uh, or, or the like. Or And by the way, you need to come to a two-week-long corporate planning session where we decide how much money to give you. All, if you spend your time on control and coordination, um, you are doing a disservice to Aquafina or Dasani, and you're making yourself less competitive. Competition happens at the coal face, and your job, your only job, is to help them compete. That would be a better model of thinking about it than it's all about control and coordination. I really appreciate that because we see this, um, again, in, in our industry with a rapid kind of disruption by telehealth, uh-huh. And teledentistry, and we often do not understand even who the proper competition is. You know, we think it's we think it's a large group down the street, and meanwhile, patients are receiving care across state borders now in ways that were not available yep. ten years ago. And thinking about yeah, thinking about competition is who con- customers think of as competition is is a key part of this, right? Yep. It, you can say, oh, no, 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 no. That's a low-cost, cheapo uh, kind of way to do it. You shouldn't be thinking about that. I think consumers saying, yeah. yeah, but to me, uh, yeah. it, it, it's good. Then you, ask, then you have to ask yourself the question. So let's say you're the, you're the sort of the in-person clinic competing with, with, with telehealth, right? And you, and you, let's say you're a corporation that has 27 clinics or something. You got to be asking yourself the question: How am I helping that clinic 
in whatever Des Moines compete against telehealth that's that is you know cross state uh, state borders? Am I making them more competitive, right? Or am I spending my time tell, telling them to send their budgets and make sure they're on budget and come into the planning meetings and come to the corporate reviews and telling them all these things that help me coordinate them, but do nothing to help them win at the coal face of a customer who's saying, gee, should I try this telehealth uh, thing? Maybe it's more convenient. Seems a little kind of uh, less ex- less expensive. What are you doing at the top to help the Des Moines Clinic? Yeah, and it never helps when we tell consumers what's good for them. Right? <laughs> <laughs> like, you notice that that doesn't work so well, huh? <laughs> <laughs> we we in uh, in dentistry in particular, we had uh, there's a great new upstart that's um, very exciting and in transparency, I'm a shareholder, but oh, okay, yeah, they've they've treated over a million patients in a, in a niche that dentists and orthodontists said, well, th- those patients, I mean, th- that's low quality. They don't want that. Well, over a million people last year did in the United States. And it's a pretty good uh, cohort. And um, you know, it's not like, it's not like 5,000 people tried it out over a million people did. And, and we, we said, well, those are probably patients that would never visit our offices. Anyways, those are, those are Walmart shoppers that would never show up at a Nordstrom, for example. And turns out we were wrong with that. Uh, a study out of the University of Pennsylvania showed over 45, 46% of them actually did visit a dentist first and did not choose to do in-office care because of cost and convenience. So that's where we're controlling and coordinating budgets and and allocation of human resources and marketing and, and clinic hours. And we realize the patients don't even want to come into the clinic. <laughs> yeah. Oh, fair. Oh, that's fa- a fascinating study. And, and I, I, would, I would predict that you're going to find that, that there, there are probably kind of two segments. One is a cost segment where, where they just say, I can't afford I like what you do, but I can't afford it. But there is going to be another convenience uh, uh, segment. I mean, it is, it is hard as heck. To get me jazzed up about going, you know, I'm in living Fort Lauderdale, and uh, Cleveland Clinic has got a facility out in Weston where my where my doctor is. Boy, during COVID, doing a doing a Zoom call with my doctor. Oh man, is that convenient? <laughs> nice. <laughs> oh man, is that that uh, convenient? Because yeah. uh, he tends to be on time, right? If you've got a ten o'clock. Uh, Zoom, it actually tends to happen at 10 if you have a, now Cleveland Clinic tries to do a good job, but if you have a 10 o'clock appointment, you know, if you get to see the doctor by 1030-ish, you're you're doing well and it's a 40-minute drive uh, out there, then uh, you got to park and walk and whatever. <laughs> so, so like, it, 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 they may they may be saying it's so much higher quality to be there physically with, with, your, with your doctor, but I'm saying... There's a huge convenience cost to, in my busy life. Holy yeah. smokes, is there ever? Uh, yeah. So, so I wouldn't be surprised if there's if there's a a segment that is is relatively you know let's say median or above income uh, and uh, and uh, is doing it for pure convenience. Yeah, I, I agree one hundred percent. There's a section of the book on. And I had to kind of stop and put the book down. So I got myself like fired up because I was like, <laughs> okay, this is absolutely 
contrarian to what I've been taught. I think I know where you're going. <laughs> it's the chapter where you say the dominant model that leaders must make data-based decisions is yeah. flat out wrong. And so my head just kind of exploded. <laughs> <laughs> but I, you're right. So I just want, I want you to kind of walk leaders through that sure. um, because doctors and, and dentists, they're all taught, you know, we need to make data-based decisions. So why do you say that that dominant model is flat out wrong? Well, uh, it, it, what you have to do is combine two things that you were taught separately. Right. So I suspect you took a statistics course as part of your education. Yep, absolutely. Yep. Yep. And uh, and then you took a bunch of uh, of courses that taught you uh, uh, applications of statistics. So if you're an MBA like like me, you get taught a statistics course, and then you get taught marketing, and you're taught how to do an analysis in marketing that that essentially used uh, what you learned in, in statistics. But they're kind of separated out. So in the marketing course, it says, well, go out and do a bunch of uh, consumer research, crunch the data, and and see what inferences you can draw. you got to make sure that you sample a, kind of a random sample of consumers, and and uh, you, you have to have the data, uh, the sample size big enough so that you have figure out the 95th percent confidence interval, and then you make decisions based on that data. And if you make them based on gut feel, you're sort of some kind of a corporate floozy, right? Um, but over in the statistics class, they taught you some kind of interesting things. They said, well, if you're going to make inferences from a sample to the universe, right? so I'm going to, I want to know what, uh, you know, what kids between 10 and 16 care about in terms of their, their uh, dentist experience. Uh, then, well, you better get uh, a random sample of 10 to 16-year-olds. If you get a bunch of 5-year-olds and a bunch of 30-year-olds, that's not going to be representative of the universe you want to understand. Uh, and if it, it's all boys that you're they're surveying, you're not going to have a representative sample. So you cannot make any inferences whatsoever from a sample unless it's entirely representative. Right? So far, so good? Yep. Yep. Okay. So, so... Um, from what era does all the world's data, every last piece of data that we have in the world, what era does it come from? The past. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So what is your assumption about, about, uh, your data? If you're saying it's representative of the universe, right? A hundred percent of that data is from the past, right? So the core assumption is that the future will be identical to the past because <laughs> if the future is different than the past, then you have an unrepresentative sample and your statistics professor would be wagging his, his or her finger at you saying, don't do anything with it. If you do anything whatsoever with that, you will be making a flawed decision. So don't, no, 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 don't go there. Meanwhile, your marketing professor or your finance professor or your operations professor is wagging fingers saying, you must do data analysis to decide what you do. So the core assumption, the absolutely core assumption uh, in this view of we must make database decisions is that the past is a perfect, and I mean perfect predictor of the future nothing whatsoever will change in the future. And if that's true, then 
voila, we're okay. Sampling from the past is representative of the universe and you're okay. And, you know, in aspects of medicine, that is absolutely true, right? The heart works the way the heart works. It always has, you know, and, and always, always will, uh, you know, blood is composed of what it's composed of in the past and the future. So that actually a bunch of those things, uh, the future is identical to the past and you can draw inferences. But if it comes to things like, well, you know, how, how do people visit dentist uh, offices, right? What we've just been talking about about five minutes ago was the future it's becoming entirely different than the past. We've got cross-border, we've got telehealth, uh, uh, teledentistry, etc. Um, and so, so basically, if you're going to make a decision that's based on data, right, you have to be able to say, yourself, say to yourself, I am utterly confident that the future will be identical to the past, and therefore I can make this database decision. If you can't say that to yourself, and I'm afraid in most aspects of business, uh, you can't. It's just hilarious. Like you, you'd be laughing at yourself saying, uh, saying it. Uh, uh, then, then you must not use data to make decisions. You must not. Now, a quick word from our sponsor. Dr. Burleson here. You've heard that real estate should be a part of every investor's portfolio, but maybe you're unsure where to start. My good friend and colleague, Dr. David Phelps, leads an investor community that has ditched the traditional Wall Street model for the stability of real estate assets. They are called Freedom Founders, and they do real estate really, really well. David's Freedom Blueprint reveals exactly how much you need to retire. Some of my top clients have done the program. They speak highly of David and his Freedom Blueprint. With the certainty of their passive real estate investments, Freedom Founders members are free to spend more time with family or even leave the practice altogether. David has put together some special resources for my listeners. To access, just text Dustin to 972-203-6960 or go to freedomfounders.com forward slash Burleson. And now, back to the program. We have this conversation with listeners who will meet at a live event or that will come out to Kansas City and and show some really detailed plans on, you know, maybe an expansion or acquisition that they're pursuing and you know, it's and they've got a lot of data. Yep. Most doctors love data, right? And so yep. we always encourage them to pump the brakes and I think of so many deals that almost got done or database decisions that changed overnight. I think I think of all the business deals on September 10th, 2001, that the next morning just fell apart. Yeah. I mean, imagine if you were the contractor for airport security and you're about to sign a big contract the next morning on September 11th. I mean, every, so sometimes everything changes, everything changes to your yeah. point that the future does not always behave like the past it often I mean, almost never I mean, there are some themes that come back over but i mean yeah and healthcare is certainly one of those i mean we could never imagine that a, that a provider in texas could diagnose an mri of a patient in minnesota and that is frequent today yes. because of technology yeah. yeah 
yeah, the way humans interact with one another <laughs> uh, and the stuff they pay attention to, whatever, all of that, all of that just changes so, uh, so dramatically. Yet, yet we, we restrict ourselves to analyzing data. And, you know, if you analyze, see, the, the sort of obverse of this is true too, sadly, right? If you uh, analyze the past in order to draw an inference from it, it will convince you to not try to make the future different than the past because yeah. it'll convince you, even though you don't realize it, that the future will be identical to the past. And then you will act in a fashion that will, will encourage it to be like the past, right? This is one thing, reason why things change so little. Now, eventually somebody else who is not kind of, uh, trapped by the data will say, couldn't we do that? Couldn't we like, couldn't we like, uh, have people, you know, do distant MRIs and, and, uh, and I'll diagnose them a thousand miles away. And everybody say, no, oh, come on, you can't really do that. Can you? And then they say, no, 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 let's do it. And this is, and this is essentially, um, if you want to create the future, right. You have to imagine a possibility right, and then figure out how to make it happen. Meanwhile, if you go to business school, you're taught the way you should operate is to analyze data and make decisions on the, on that basis, right? That's why, that's why business schools are teaching you not to be creative, how to avoid creativity at all costs. And in fact, feel badly about yourself if you actually, if you actually ever get this sort of creative inclination. And to and to adapt, we have a we have a friend who's a member here and and um, a, a big influencer in our industry who is co-founder of one of the largest, probably the largest patient financing company for mm. for orthodontic and dental patients. And he says because they have a trove of data and on, it, I mean everything from demographic to credit scores to how much, how much people finance and win. And how, I mean, it's just amazing the amount of data they have. And he says, but, and with, so this is someone who has a ton of data says, but using that to make decisions about tomorrow is like driving your car, looking in the rear view mirror. And really? oh, good for him. He's that's right. He's, he's see, that's probably why he's so successful. <laughs> right. Because I mean, he, he has this huge advantage, right? Which is everybody else is, doing that and everybody was trained to do that uh and and uh you know you're you're never you're never going to invent the future uh by being data analytical yep. you will you will optimize the present and in, and in some sense that's what that's what data analysis does so I'm not the guy who, who you know, kind of invented this thinking, you know, <laughs> a pretty smart dude named Aristotle 2,500 <laughs> years ago invented this. He said, you can split the world into two pieces, the part of the world where things cannot be other than they are, yeah. right? If, you know, if I drop my smartphone, it, it will fall, right? And it fell 10 years ago, 100 years ago, whatever, it'll fall next year, it'll fall in Antarctica, it'll fall. It's in, it's in the part of the world where things cannot be other than they are because there is a universal force called gravity and it does push things down. But if I ask the question, 
how many smartphones are there in, uh, and I'm sitting in 1999, mm-hmm. the answer is zero. Zero. Because the first one came out in 2000. If I ask the question, how many smartphones are there now on the planet? The answer is 4.4 billion. <laughs> That's the part of the world where things can be other than they are. And what Aristotle essentially said is in the part of the world where things cannot be other than they are, in some sense, the job of human beings is to analyze the data, to understand the causes of the effects we see so that we can optimize to that, right? So in health, it's like you analyze all these people who smoke get cancer, right? And they always will get cancer because lungs aren't going to aren't going to change and nicotine and smoke is inhalation is not going to not going to change the effect on on lungs and so you can optimize by trying to talk people out of smoking make it harder to smoke etc and then you let vaping happen of course but before that we were were pretty good Um, but he said in the part of the world where things can be other than they are the job of human beings is to be the cause of the effect that they want to see Right, which is quite a quite a lovely thought, I think. Right, and so your you know your clever dentistry financing guy wants to see something that doesn't exist now, and he says, "My job is to make that thing happen." And I'm presuming if we, if we were talking to him right now, he'd say, "Yeah, I want more people to be able to finance in a reasonable way their their uh, dentist dentistry because it'll be net positive." Uh, for them. And right now they think they can't do it because they can't get financing for it and they can't afford it. So he wants to be the cause of a new effect. And he will never be the cause of a new effect, even though never is a long time, if he makes his decisions based on data, because the data will tell him this is the way it is. And he wants to make it a different way, right? The only way you can do that, Aristotle said, is to imagine possibilities and choose the one for which the most compelling argument can be made. And that is a fundamentally different model of, of being a manager than is taught universally at all business academic institutions on the face of the planet. You're spot on. I, I love that. That's great. I read somewhere, someone tweeted, someone much smarter than I tweeted that you are our generation's Peter Drucker. And <laughs> I could not uh, agree more. It's, um, that's very way. nice. He was, he's uh, my hero. He's my hero. It's the best manager, most important managerial thinker of all time. So yeah, that is a very I, lovely thing to say. Yeah. I just, I could, could not agree more. So, um, thank you for that. That was, that was fantastic. Um, can we shift gears and talk about culture? I think that's always, sure. a, um, it's always a hot topic for our members. I think they, yes. they want to, um, address it, particularly if they are acquiring a lot of, a lot of consolidation is happening in healthcare, as you know. Yeah. And so, you know, trying to, merge or acquire cultures is really challenging so can we talk a little bit about um maybe some myths about culture and the dominant way of thinking and and maybe a new way of thinking sure sure so i think the dominant way of thinking about culture is that you can declare the culture you want and it will happen Right. So, and you see this often in the scenario you, you've just talked about. So we've, t- we've taken you over and you get all the people together and say, well, you know, your culture was this, our culture here is to be blah, 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 whatever the hell blah, blah, blah happens to be. <laughs> and then you imagine it will change or, or that's, that's the most usual thing to happen. The second uh, most usual technique is to say, 
well, we are going to change culture by flattening the organization, decentralizing, or maybe centralizing, right? We're going to make a formal organizational change. Uh, so one is by declaring and the other is by formal organizational change. Um, and that's, and that's what, why, what, what we see happening. And that's, I would argue, why we see cultures not changing. Um, how do cultures change? Cultures change only when there is a different nature of interpersonal interaction. Because culture derives out of how we interact with one another then there sort of becomes a shared understanding. Culture sort of shared norms and understanding so that you know you've got a strong culture if you could have 10 members of the organization watch like as if they were watching behind a one-way mirror, right, and watching a meeting, and they all say, oh, wow, the CEO really schooled that EVP, <laughs> right? And if, and if some of them say, oh, no, no, no the CEO was really nice uh, to him, you don't understand, then you wouldn't have a strong culture because people can't interpret things in, or won't uh, interpret things in a consistent way. If it's all consistent, it's, oh, wow, did you see that? Then you've got a culture. So if you want culture to change, the only thing that will change it is when people work with one another person to person, uh, they change the way they behave. And the only way that I've ever seen that change is when the people at the top change their behavior, right? So when they change the way they interact with other people, right, it slowly starts to change the way people understand how interactions uh, happen, right? So you know, when I first started working with uh, A.G. Lafley after after he had worked with him before, but when he became a CEO, what we realized is that the the strategy and planning process in PNG had become theater. Right, the culture was something called get in and get out. So if you were a business unit president, like you were president of baby care, you know, the Pampers business, uh, and you're coming up for your strategy review, you'd put together a, a huge long PowerPoint deck that you would want to come in to print, present to the CEO, CEO, uh, kind of CFO, et cetera, the top six man managers who would be on the receiving end. And, and uh, it would be buttoned down airtight and you would have a whole lot of little slide loops uh, uh, in case uh, a question came up, oh, funny, you should ask that. Whoop, flip out the six-page deck to show that you that uh, that how uh, you that question uh, answered. So it was just it was just corporate theater where there could be no actual discussion of any of anything. If the CEO raised a question, there was already a set answer to it, and so. AG was like, this is such a waste of time. I hate, I, uh, I hate this. Um, and if you actually asked the business unit presidents, they hated it too. But that was the culture. Get in and get out. What you wanted to do is get, get in, make your presentation, and get out with the least amount of changes uh, possible to what you're planning to do. So no value was the ultimate goal. Right, which is just kind of something when you think about it. So we just made this subtle change. We said, um, "Here's how that interaction is is uh, is going to go." 
we're happy to get that PowerPoint deck, but you just need to send it to us a week in advance, not months and months in advance, a week in advance. We will issue to you a just a very short memo with the three subjects based on our reading of that that we would like to discuss. And you are not allowed to bring into that meeting more than three new pages of anything. Love it. So we don't want you to have a 100-page PowerPoint deck answering those questions because we want to have a discussion of these questions uh, in, in the meeting. Uh, and, and by the way, we have absorbed your PowerPoint deck. You don't have to, we don't have to spend any amount of the time uh, uh, going over the PowerPoint deck. We just want to talk about these three things. It freaked the people out at first because, <laughs> you know, they wanted to come in with an, another 100-page deck. They wanted to present. Can't we just present our deck? And it was like, no, 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 we've, we've, we've read it. We've read um, it, yeah. Uh, we just want to discuss this business. What could be, you know, kind of uh, these, you know, what are the, what could we do to make sure these things that is now a threat we can, we can take care of? And it took about two or three years to change the culture, change the culture about how the CEO had dialogue with uh, his uh, uh, business unit presidents. Um, but then it just became, it became the new culture. The culture was, uh, was that you did this in, in advance and you had a discussion. In order to that discussion came a bunch of, a bunch of things that, uh, that you could do to follow up and, and the like, and, and, it changed completely from cor- something that was corporate theater to something that that the business unit presidents and the CEOs loved and would have missed completely if it had gone away. So that's you have to think if you want to change culture about how you interact in that interpersonal domain, uh, and that is what will eventually change the culture and what was ag trying to demonstrate to others you know if you kind of like doing this up right and you're the head of you know whatever beauty care maybe you want to do that with the head of shampoo and conditioners and the head of antiperspirant deodorants and skin care whatever and sure enough that starts to happen because because that becomes the more natural way to interact with one another, and then you have this this uh, change of culture from from formal kind of command and control to dialogue between intelligent people about how to shape the future. Yeah, and for listeners to catch them up, we're talking about a small company called Procter and Gamble. <laughs> oh, right. uh, when when yeah. Roger says, "Yeah, I did this, change this over at P and G," I think probably around a three hundred and eighty billion dollar company. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so if you can if you can deliver value and change the culture at a behemoth, a really cool company. I'm biased. My uncle did research and development for them. Many oh, years. really? Oh, oh boy, Daddy, yeah, yeah. R and D there is great. Oh, there. It's just such a. I mean, he loved his time there. He's, anyways. Um, yeah. But what what I do say on the, on that front is, Kremlin watching does not just happen in Moscow. Right? <laughs> <laughs> um, it happens everywhere, and you cannot imagine um, how much impact a change in interpersonal behavior of a CEO has. Because everybody watches it. Everybody watches it, right? So, for example, another thing, AG, the, the, the CEO took over and turned around P&G in, uh, in the 2000-2009 period. Um, 
he said to all the businesses around the world who wanted him to come and visit to open this plant or talk to the, you know, the president of the country or whatever, you know, said, I'll come and visit under two conditions. One, uh, you set up an in-home visit for me. So we, we find a, a consumer and I'll visit her, mainly mainly women in her home, to sit down and talk to her about how do you do wash, uh, how do you do dishes, how do you clean your floors, blah, 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 all of, all of that, uh, and uh, store checks. I need to go and do and walk uh, uh, several of the, of the retailers. If you, don't, if you don't do that, I ain't coming. So what... You know, what cultural change does that bring about, right? Sort of like it's super hard for the country manager of Turkey uh, to say, well, the CEO of Procter & Gamble has time to do in-home visits with with consumers and store checks. How is it that I do not have the time, Right. And the answer exactly. is, there is no answer. And so you start doing it, right? And then when the president of all of Turkey, PNG Turkey, is doing in-homes and store checks, what does the category manager of, of uh, beauty care do in Turkey? Do in-home visits and exactly. store checks, right? It, so the you just have to, if you want cultural change, you have to, uh, you have to lead it by changing your own behavior which again this is like i I rip off aristotle i rip off gandhi right (laughs) be be the change you want to see right but i mean uh, gandhi was brilliant and and uh, and right right Uh, yeah um, that's how change happened that's how culture change happens I'll never forget one of our head marketing copywriters who's done a lot of work for excellence in orthodontics and for our member programs, um, helped develop a really popular skincare product. And it became wildly successful. The firm sold for over a billion dollars. And the the co-founder, he said, he said, when's the last time you were in a Walmart to see where this thing is on the shelf? And he just said, I don't, I don't shop at Walmart. He he had flown into this meeting on on his private jet. And the advisor wisely said, you might want to, you know, get to Walmart every now and then and see what, see what this is like. So his entire marketing team had never been to a Walmart or a Target and walked oh, around. Wow. And that's wow, something wow. we tell all of our members. If, if you, you know, if you're a doctor, you're a plastic surgeon or an, an ophthalmologist or an orthodontist or a dentist listening to this and, and you don't shop at your Target or your Walmart or your Sam's Club or your Costco, I promise you, your consumers do. And you might want to go walk around and see what that community is like before you start trying to sell to them. So no I love kidding. your story that no the head of P&G said, I'll come on two conditions. And they're, they're probably thinking, okay, he's going to need a private jet and he's going to need a, the, the penthouse suite at the Four Seasons. And he's like, no, I want to meet with some consumers and I want to see our products on the shelves. That's brilliant. Yeah. And it, and one of the things was uh, legendary in his entire time there was a time that he insisted on going out to Western China, right? Rural wow. China, not wow. Shanghai, Beijing, rural China to watch and talk to women washing clothes in wow. a scream. Wow. Because he wanted to say, hey, you know, we think Chinese, you know, people live in Shanghai and, and, and Beijing. And of course, there are 30 or 40 million people in each of those, but the 1.2 billion dollar a billion people lots of them wash their clothes in in a stream what can we do for them 
and everybody's like, holy smokes. Uh, what a great leader. What yeah, a great what, leader. Exactly. And, and it's that, and then that's culture. Did he order everybody else to go to streams? Did he, did he change the organizational structure? So you had stream watchers, you know, kind of no. he just behaved differently and, uh, and people, uh, people watched. Yeah. Um, I mean, we're getting close to the end of our time together. I want to talk, if we can, a little bit about knowledge work. Oh, sure. I see it in 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 healthcare in that it often sets the dominant model often sets up this consistent uh, and destructive hiring and firing cycle. Can we talk yeah. about uh, knowledge work? Sure. So the interesting thing about kind of the modern organization and it would certainly be in a professionally oriented organ uh, world like like uh, like dentistry is is that it's adopted the habits of a world that's gone away uh in a way that isn't very helpful so the the it used to be that if you had a had a company like let's just say procter and gamble a hundred years ago they would have had all sorts of factories producing all their all their various uh, uh, kind of products, head and shoulders and pampers and Tide and et cetera, et cetera. And then a small uh, 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 structure of offices, an office tower with some people with some people in it managing managing that. Uh, then all these companies have grown, and what's happened is that you have a much bigger part of the wage bill. In Proctor's case, even though it's a classic product-producing thing, sixty-seven uh, percent of the wage bill is in office towers. Yep. Uh, and you ask the question: Well, what do those people in office towers do? Because you're manufacturing products in all the plants, and they have plants all over the world manufacturing all these products. But you've got these office towers. Well, they are they are decision factories. Right. <laughs> they they manufacture decisions. What we are going to produce, what we're going to price it for, how we're going to advertise it, what's our R and D budget, all the, all of those all of those things, and and if you look at it, that work is very different. So work in the factory. So if you just go to a, a diaper a diaper plant in Proctor, they have a, a a bunch of workers who come in at the start of their shift and work in the same way, their whole shift, end it, come back the next day, do the same thing, except those are what I call flat jobs, where the job is the same every time you are the third kind of worker on the of the 12 workers along the, the diaper line, right? We've taken that world and said, said, I guess the people working in those office hours must have flat jobs too, so we have something called a brand manager, and I guess they come in every day and manage the brand, right? But it turns out that if you look at those jobs, those jobs aren't flat. They are a series of projects. So that brand manager may, may be intensely working on launching a new variant of it, or that brand manager may for a couple of months be worrying about how to get better retail distribution because where shelf space is being being shrunk, or or there's a new ad campaign, or there's a new it's a set of projects that are different. In fact, that brand manager can probably only say Yes, here's the part of my flat job. Every morning, every Monday morning, we have a one-hour meeting about the about the category I'm working working on. The other 39 hours are are a series of things that come and go, projects that take up all of my time, day and night, and then disappear forever because we fixed it. So we've taken that flat structure and applied it to a structure that's really project oriented. And then what we do, right? 
is add enough capacity so that when there are multiple projects going on at the same time in a person's area, you've got enough staffing, right? It's like staffing. It's like uh, planning your capacity for your uh, power generator to the, you know, if you're in the whatever, in the south, it's the, the hottest day of the year when every air conditioner is going, right? Um, and what you have then is massive amounts of slack in that power generation in the cold months, right? Or the opposite, if you happen to be in Minneapolis, it's maybe the it's maybe January fourteenth is the is the peak peak usage. We design organizations for that peak usage uh, because we've organized flat jobs, um, and you have to add another another flat job when you hit uh, peak peak usage. If instead you said, you know what, this is a project world, we should manage this on the basis of projects. We should have people available to work on projects. So rather than having a brand manager for every one of Proctor's $70 billion uh, or or 70 big big, uh, brands, we say we should have we should have a cadre of brand managers who are capable of doing these projects, and we'd assign them to these uh, these uh, projects as projects are are required. And you say, well, that gee, that's a weird way to way to organize. And I say, well, if you look at what happens at Accenture or Deloitte, both are forty to sixty billion dollar companies. That's actually how they're organized. Yep. Professional service firms are organized around projects. You just have a level that says, here's the kind of role you could take on a project and the kind of projects you have experience in doing. And we will assign you that project and you'll be ripping at it for six months, working day and night on it, and then it's gone. And then you're assigned to another project. I believe that if we organize the decision factories of the world by uh, uh, projects rather than flat jobs, I believe we could have a 30% saving in in all uh, white collar employment uh, in uh, in our companies, thirty percent. Wow! Because we've got that much slack built into it by having these flat jobs. Because when somebody's got a flat job, you're a brand manager, and you don't actually have a lot of projects going on right now. Do you go to your boss and say, "Could I go lay on a beach for a few days because I got no projects?" Yep. No you make up work to do exactly. so that you can look busy. <laughs> and that's why, that's why there's this, you started out the question with this, with this sort of what I call binge and purge, right? So companies, yep. when things are going well, they binge and hire all sorts of white collar people. And then when things are going, going badly for one reason or another, they fire a whole bunch of them. And you'd say, well, how could they possibly fire 10,000 white collar workers? And uh, like, there must be so much stuff falling through the cracks uh, after that. And typically it's not. And it's yep. because, because you have all this incredible slack because you've got job structure, flat jobs, that are not is not suited to the the actual world, which is projects, and not just the savings to the bottom line. But I'm assuming probably you saw lower turnover, higher engagement yep. in those employees, particularly creative employees or knowledge work that have project based versus these flat jobs. Correct? Absolutely, absolutely. And and if you if you will, I think in the modern economy there are lots and lots of talented people who are you know what is the gig economy? What is a gig? Yep. 
it's a project, right? Yeah, that's just another name for, for project. People are voting with their feet and saying, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to organize my, myself around projects and I don't need, I, I, I do not need to be slotted into a company as a, as a, whatever, a, uh, you know, whatever medium level, uh, kind of package designer. Yeah. I'm going to, I'm going to join the gig economy and hang up my shingle and get projects designing packages and get rid of all this useless bureaucratic overhead that's above me and, and have more fun. Uh, so I think, I think <clears throat> if we don't rethink the decision factories and remember, you know, you would think you, you could say, well, Roger, I, I understand how, how in, in a big, you know, I, I don't know, big consulting firm or something. Yes. You'd have all, you know, white collar, more white collar than, than blue collar, but not in a, not in a Procter and Gamble where they have factories that are actually banging out stuff. No wage bill, two thirds knowledge workers. Wow. Every company is now dominated by knowledge workers. And the reason is the knowledge workers just get paid way more. Right. Yeah. Um, and, and, uh, for <laughs> better, for, for worse, they get, they get paid way more. So, um, the, the amount of, of waste of human lives <laughs> of people doing work that doesn't need to be done. And you know, as well as I do that if you're doing work that doesn't need to be done, it's not fulfilling, <laughs> right? No. What's fulfilling? What is fulfilling to you when you're doing something that you know is important to be done, that's hard to do, that's challenging? Uh, that's what gives you uh, fulfillment. And I think, right, if we went to, if we reorganized the, the, the knowledge uh, factories with a different model, project bases rather than flat jobs, we'd see productivity rise, worker satisfaction rise, and the economy grow faster. Because you don't grow an economy on the basis of uh, useless, unproductive work, right? You, That's what we've seen for a long time. We have, I could talk to you all day about why, why really worker productivity in the United States hasn't changed a whole lot in the last 40 or 50 years. I think it's a huge part of it. And I love, love, love that section of the book and yeah. the entire book. So. Um, I thank you for writing it. If, uh, you know, if you're a member of this program, you're going to receive a physical copy of Roger Martin's new book, a new way to think your guide to superior management effectiveness. I know people are going to want to learn more about you, Roger, if this is their first time hearing you, I, um, just like to maybe let us know, let listeners know where they can find you and what, what you're doing next. Cause you you write a ton and it's all great stuff. So <laughs> where, where can they find you? Well, uh, well, I'd like to start by just say, uh, saying uh, a big thank you to Burlington, Burlington Box. I mean, I think it's just, it's really lovely that you've interviewed me again for, for a book. It's, it's, it's really appreciated. But they can, fi they can find out uh, more about me from my website. I, all the, everything that I've written is organized, I think, nicely there. It's Roger L. Martin. My middle initial is L for Lloyd. So uh, Roger, www.rogerlmartin.com. And uh, I have been now for the past year and a half also writing a weekly uh, uh, post uh, kind of column on Medium. So if you're if you're into Medium, uh, you can find it there. But if if you're not, if you don't pay fifty bucks a year to to belong to Medium, I post all of them on on that website uh, so that you can see what I write uh, every week. We will include both of those in the show notes. Roger, thank you for being here. Thanks for writing the book. It's such a tremendous honor. Um, thanks for having me. This is lots of fun as always. 
You've been listening to another episode of The Burleson Box, where we bring you and your team leaders into the conversation with today's best authors and business leaders. If you enjoyed today's program, please share us with a friend or colleague. Visit theburlesonbox.com, where you can sign up to receive my monthly reading list, study guides for each of the books and authors we interview. Give us a call at 1-800-891-7520, and we can discuss how a Burleson Box membership, monthly coaching, or our annual leadership conference can work for you and your team leaders. Be sure to listen each month for new resources to help you and your employees serve your patients with excellence. Until next time, remember the words of Umberto Eco, who said, The person who doesn't read lives only one life. The reader lives 5,000. Reading is immortality backwards. Go and make it a great month. I'll see you right here next time on The Burleson Box. When's the last time you evaluated your credit card processing statement? Our partners at Stacks are offering a free savings analysis for our listeners, where they will actually take your merchant statement with your current processor and show you where you're overpaying. Stacks has saved orthodontics practices over 40% per month on payment processing costs. So don't wait. Get your free savings analysis today and see how much you're overpaying for your credit card processing. Go to StacksPayments.com forward slash Burleson dash seminars to schedule your savings analysis today. Plus, as a special offer for our podcast listeners, if you sign up today, you can get your first two months of payments processing costs waived from Stacks. Once again, that's StacksPayments.com forward slash Burleson dash seminars. Stop overpaying. Start saving.